you very much for reading that for us, Derek. As we come to God's word, shall we uh, pray together? Let's pray. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favour. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Father God, we pray for your help this morning as we come to your word and behold this wonderful picture of what it means for you to dwell amongst us. Might you help us treasure and tremble at these words in worshipping you this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, I I wonder, particularly I think for those of us who are are believers here this morning, um, if someone asked you, why does God save us? How you'd start to answer that question. Why does God save us? I think the Bible gives us a number of different ways we could start to answer that question. Maybe your mind goes uh, to one of the great catechisms. He, he saves us for his glory. When God saves a people, he's revealing how good and how gracious and how loving and how just he is as a God. And you'd be entirely right. Or maybe we could think about him saving us for our good. And we think of what it means to be forgiven, to be given life. Uh, Again, a good answer. But if you ask the question another way, what what does he save us for? What what does he care about having saved us as a people, but both now and when he returns? I wonder whether that's a question we don't tend to think about maybe as much as we could. It's a question that this second half of the book of Exodus is really all about. We've seen God rescue a people from slavery in Egypt. We've seen him enter into this covenant relationship with God. And the second half of the book is now helping unpack for us, well, what does that mean? Why does he go through all of this? And here, we're given something of an answer. Uh, Look with me at the beginning of uh, chapter 25, where the Lord says to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. Uh, He lays out for the people, if you like, a shopping list. Here are all the things that are going to be needed for a building project. Now, just as an aside, how wonderful is it that God doesn't say, go to all of the Israelites and demand that they pay their fair share, that everyone pulls their weight. Now, what does he say? He says, you're to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. What a beautiful thing. This God, knowing this God, being in a relationship with this God is going to prompt this people's heart to give. Well, we're told some of the things that are needed, gold, silver, bronze, purple, uh, blue, scarlet yarn, fine linen. Uh, Remember, this people is on the move. Uh, There's no shops to go and get these things. Uh, People's possessions are going to need to be presented to Moses as part of this offering. But what is this all for? Look at verse 8. Then let them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. What do these chapters tell us about God's plan, God's purpose for saving his people? It is that he might dwell. 
that he might make his home. This is God going camping with Israel. This is the mobile mountain. Uh, We've just seen, haven't we? God appeared to the people on the top of this mountain. Uh, We're going to see many of those things we saw in those previous chapters kind of expressed in this design, this tabernacle tent that he's telling them to make. Now, we've started to think about this already this morning, but it's important for us to realize we we don't need a tabernacle anymore. We don't need a temple. Uh, There's nothing special about the church building. I think that's made wonderfully clear by being able to meet in a school. No, where does God live now? We've sung that already, haven't we? God lives in his people. So when we look at this tabernacle, how are we to relate to that? I think this tabernacle we're to see is, is like God giving his people this sort of big picture book. You know, like the sort of books you give to kids that sort of lay out sort of ideas really simply. This is his big picture book for what that means, what that reality that we now have in Jesus means. Put it another way, what will God dwelling in us as his people look like and how on earth could that be possible? Well, there are a lot of details in this passage, and it's helpful probably to see something of a picture. So I've got a picture here. I have to say, I quite liked Stu's diagram, but that's probably more revealing of me. This is an artist's impression of uh, what is going on with the tabernacle. Uh, You can see that there is a kind of a fence around the outside. There's a courtyard, which has the the altar for burnt offerings. Oh, thank you. Uh, And there is then a, a sort of the central tent at the back, which we'll come to in a moment. Now, there are a lot of details here as we read the passage. And the temptation is that we we potentially start to turn off. Now, I have to say, when I was reading this in preparation, I was quite interested until I got to chapter 26 and then saw all this mention of hanging curtains and making loops. Uh, And then I thought, you know what? This, This would be as fascinating to someone else who likes curtains as probably a box of USB cables would be to me. You see, if you are a craftsperson, you care about the details. And actually, wonderfully, in this description, there are, there are lots of very practical things. God is telling him to make, make um, these various bits of furniture out of wood that's going to be light and durable. Uh, he's putting rings on them to make sure that this is going to be permanent and, and portable. Uh, he cares about the details. This is God's design. This isn't God saying, you know what, build me a home. No, this is God saying, this is the sort of home I need. And that means that the details show us things that are significant. They are there to teach us. They're there to teach us about the sort of God that we have and what it means for him to dwell. So three things uh, that we're going to see, I think, about our God. And the first is this. He is the holy king. He is the holy king. Uh, Holiness, as we've seen, is is a repeated theme in the book of Exodus. And uh, we see it here very clearly in verse 8, where God tells them to make this tent, this tabernacle, this dwelling place. And he calls it a sanctuary. A sanctuary. Uh, That word sanctuary is, is related to the word holy. It means this is a place that is set apart. This is a place that needs to be special. And it's going to make sense of why the people have to be so careful with how they treat this holy place. The point is, for a holy God to dwell amongst his people, the holy God needs a holy place. 
And in fact, even within the design of this tabernacle, there is this sort of almost a sense, an intensity that grows the closer that you get to God. The closer that you get to the very heart of where he says, I will meet with the people, the holier that things might get. Uh, we see this in a couple of ways. Uh, firstly, we're given zones. I think we've got a zoomed in picture here. Um, you could just about make out the curtain there that we saw in that diagram earlier. Uh, you, you have to be careful as you come into the courtyard, but then there is the holy place that's going to have the table with the bread of presence and the lampstand. But then you go further still to the very heart of where God is, you go to the most holy place. The point, the closer you get to God, the holier you need to be. But it's also reflected in some other details. You might notice that the metals are used change from bronze to silver to gold, all of them driving at the same point. The God of the Bible is not to be messed with. He's not to be taken lightly. He's the, the maker of this world. He's the giver of life. And he must be rightly honoured. That's the point I think this is making. Uh, it made me think of that kind of old phrase. I'm not actually sure what the phrase is, but you know when people talk about the, the king or queen never see a pothole. Have you ever heard that? You know, they never see a pothole in the roads. Why? Well, because there's a group of people going around filling in the potholes when they know where they're going to be driving, making sure that the road is, is suitably dressed for their journey. Uh, there's a sense, there's a parallel here with God. When the king turns up, the potholes need to be filled. The place needs to be made ready. And I think this is significant for us in revealing how much we truly revere God. So you might be a taxpayer here this morning and you think of the royal family getting special treatment and having their potholes filled uh, for their journeys. You might think, well, hang on a minute, that's a bit of a waste of money. And in fact, that's not fair. They don't deserve that. They're not worthy of that. But what about when we think about God? Do our hearts start to tremble at the thought of him coming and living in us? Of the thought of what it means to, in a sense, roll out the red carpet for him. That for him to dwell in us might mean that there are things in our life that need to change, that need to grow in holiness. Well, let's go through the tabernacle and into the most holy place. And what do we find there? We see it from verse 10. We are given the ark of the covenant. Verse 10, let them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out. Now, you might notice in your Bibles that there's a, a footnote, probably, that tells you that the word ark is the idea of a sort of chest. At the very heart of the most holy place, God gives his people a chest. A chest that is clearly royal because it's, it's overlaid with gold and it's got this kind of remarkable moulding on the cover that we'll come to. But notice what goes in the chest, verse 16. Put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law. These are the agreements that God uh, made with the people. These were the laws that he's given that the people have said, yes, we are going to obey. We're going to uh, 
going to uh, fulfill these. Now, there's an awful lot that's going on in this picture, but I think there's some kind of background historical information that's quite useful to know here. At many uh, of the other kind of nations in the, the ancient Near East, at the foot of a throne would have a footstool, a box. A box, it turns out, that you would put your covenant agreement in. Uh, what's the point? This is God's footstool. This is the bottom of his throne. This is where his covenant agreement with the people is placed. Uh, this is why in 1 Chronicles 28, David, in talking about the Ark of the Covenant, refers to it as God's footstool. Now, do you see how important this is for setting the tone of what this relationship between God and his people looks like? As the king's foot steps down into their camp and he enters their midst, he's not just there to kind of encourage Israel, to cheer them on in their own personal ambitions and goals. No, he's coming as king. At his footstool where he meets them, he comes as their Lord, stooping down to speak to them, yes, but he comes with a reign that is to start to change and give life to them as a people. I think getting our heads around this helps with what it is to change our posture towards God. See, notice there are some very big differences. There is no throne here. Other, other deities had their footstools and they had their thrones and the idols. There is no throne. There is just the footstool. Why? Well, the tabernacle can't contain God's throne. God's throne is in heaven. You, you can almost imagine, you know, the high priest as he beholds this footstool and, and he kind of looks back and back and back. He couldn't bend his neck back far enough to take in where God is. Where God's throne is. He, he's the one who's made this entire world. And yet he promises in this footstool to be with the people. To be present. It's interesting that actually even God's people can quickly miss this point of how big their God is. And how wonderful it is that God would, if you were, come down and speak to them. Uh, do you remember that story in 1 Samuel chapter 4? Uh, this has to be one of my favorite stories, where God's people are in battle with the Philistines. They're not winning the war. They've not sought God. What do they do? They say, ah, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant. Let's, let's bring our God out onto the battlefield. We'll, we'll put him in front of us, and, and, and he'll sort it out. If you like, it was their way of saying, you know, we're going to kind of twist God's arm. We're going to get God in the battle. Well, what does God do? He lets the ark get captured. They are utterly humiliated. And yet, God then sort of, uh, you might remember there's a scene in the, the temple that they put the ark. He's in front of this God called Dagon. And every, every morning they wake up, the, the, the idol is on the floor and then smashed. And then boils break out and the ark has to be returned. God, God shows his people. He is utterly powerful. He, he's able to do anything. He doesn't need his people. But do you notice how that tendency in their hearts to want to control God? And yet God says, no, 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 no. I'm king. Well, what does this mean for us? I think it means that when we think about God coming to dwell in us by his Holy Spirit, 
we recognize that this is the king who's making contact with our hearts. His, his feet have come to rest in our hearts. See, the promise is that his rule is not going to be through written down commandments that we need to obey. Israel showed that that was impossible to change our hearts. No, he comes giving us new desires, a new heart. But the posture is that of submission to him. See, I wonder when we talk about God being with us, maybe something hard usually happening, we want God to be with us. How quickly do our minds sometimes run to a sort of 1 Samuel 4 kind of prayer? We want God to help us with what we think needs to happen. We want God to do our will. We, we want him to help. We want him to comfort. We want him to be a friend. And certainly the Bible promises all those things, and yet they flow from a heart that starts by saying, you are king and I am not. They flow from remembering how great and how good God is and the fact that we can trust him. It turns us to pray, your kingdom come, my kingdom go. See, over the last couple of weeks of grace, I've had a number of conversations with uh, people here who have experienced really hard things, who are experiencing hard things, things outside their control. And yet, I think in each of those cases, in their own words, each person expressed the same wonderful thing, which is that, look, God is in charge. He is good. And I don't know what's going on here, but I can trust him. And I want to trust him. That is profoundly encouraging because that is evidence of the living God making his home in us as his people. And that's not just something for us as individuals. We want to see God's presence grow amongst us, don't we? We want to see a growth together in what it means to be holy, becoming Christ-like, for God's rule to be evident in our lives and our relationships. That's the first point. He's the holy king. But secondly, he's the God who atones. Uh, notice what was on top of the ark. We're told an atonement cover, verse 17, of pure gold. Uh, and this has two features on it. Two cherubim. Uh, cherubim were angels. And um, don't think here of those sort of comical pictures of sort of, you know, angels in our culture. Think of warriors, these are warriors who are there to guard access to the deity. And for us, we think back to Genesis 3, don't we? Think about Adam and Eve thrown out of the garden. What is there at the entrance? There are two cherubim with, with flashing swords, signs that we need to keep out. Well, here we find these two cherubim on the ark. And in fact, they're embroidered in the curtain in chapter 26. Uh, this is God's way of saying, here is my front door. This is the way back to the garden. The way back to experience the sort of relationship that God designed us for. And yet, do you see that they are not holding swords? Notice what we're told about in verse 20. The cherubim are to face each other, looking towards the cover. They are looking at something. It's like as if we see these two guardian warriors and we, we trace their eyes. Where are they looking? They're looking at this atonement cover. 
Now, we, we don't tend to use the word atonement very much, but this is the idea of bringing two parties that have been separated back together. If you want a, a good way of giving a bit of a definition of what atonement means, think at one moment. You're making at one, at one moment, atonement. And it comes from the Hebrew word for cover. This is how God is going to cover, to erase, to remove sin. See, if you're not familiar with the beginning part of the Bible, we are told that God is the one who made a beautiful world. He made this world full of wonderful things and he gave it as a gift to Adam and Eve who would, who would as it were, reign underneath him in this creation. Who would have the joy of exploring and naming and discovering and cultivating this earth. It was a world that was full of yeses with only a single no. Day after day, Adam and Eve experienced unparalleled goodness from God. And yet all it took was one snake raising that question, does God really want what's best for you? The whisper that echoes through the centuries. And that's what it took. Devastating betrayal. That the king that Adam and Eve were made and designed to enjoy and serve, they decided to jump ship. They wanted to make a coup. They wanted to call the shots. It's a story that gets repeated day after day as we say no to God. And it's a story that demands judgment. See, a holy God cannot ignore wickedness. There is a separation between us and God. And yet here, now at God's doorway... He is pointing us to how he tells us he will fix it. Atonement. Sacrifice. Life for life. We're going to see more on this in the coming chapters, but let me just leave us with two implications for us. Sacrifice in this way shows us the sinfulness of sin. See, how often is it easy for us to play down our sin? in different ways. Just think of our, our speech. You know, we say words that hurt someone else. That's not really what I meant. I think you took it too personally. I, I was only joking. Or in fact, actually, I only said that because of what you did. <laughs> you made me angry. Uh, in so many ways, we are so creative at minimizing sin, making it out to be not very bad. And yet here, in this sort of sacrifice that needs to be made for sin, God says, no, look, this is how bad it is. Uh, can you just imagine what it would be like to be the one making this sacrifice? And we're told in Leviticus chapter 1 that a sacrifice would be brought out and a hand would be placed on this sacrifice, identifying with this sacrifice, this is me. What's going to happen in this next five minutes? This is what I deserve. And you see that sacrificial animal taken in front of you and slaughtered. Its blood drained out. God isn't trying to be gory here. He's trying to communicate to us that is how bad our sin is. 
That is what we deserve. Our problem isn't ignorance. We don't just need a teacher, we need a saviour. And yet wonderfully, in that very same picture, God isn't just saying this is what you deserve. This is what's hanging over your head. He's saying this is what I'm going to send. I am going to send a substitute who will stand in your place Uh, The book of Hebrews tells us that these sacrifices that get made in the Old Testament, they had to be made day after day. There was always a kind of an inbuilt sense that this really wasn't big enough. This wasn't significant enough. But Jesus, when he dies on the cross as the sacrificial lamb of the world, that is where God says, this is how bad your sin is. You needed the God of the universe to die in your place. And yet that is what I've done for you. That is how much I love you. See, some of us can really struggle to feel our sin. Others of us have hearts that are acutely aware, that feel that condemnation, that sense, that guilt, the half-heartedness. Maybe the danger for you is that you don't see how much that picture is designed to bring you assurance See, as much as that that picture of that death shows us this is what we deserve, it also shows us that this is God finishing it. He doesn't leave us in the doghouse. He doesn't want to keep us kind of sort of groveling, trying better, because we're worried about his judgment. No, the logic of the gospel is completely, utterly absurd to us. He says you are entirely forgiven. So imagine writing down all of your sins, all of the things you're most deeply ashamed about, and you hand it to God, and because of Jesus, he rips that list in two. Now that is how our hearts grow in devotion and love for our God. That is how our hearts see the goodness of this king and want his reign to rule more and more in our lives. This is God telling us, this is his front door, He will meet us above the atonement cover. Well, thirdly and finally, God is the one who gives life. Uh, We are given uh, two more bits of furniture now that are just outside the most holy place. Um, And firstly, we're told about this table, uh, a table that has uh, some plates and some dishes and, verse 30, the bread of presence. Again, some background's helpful to know here. Uh, In the ancient Near East, temples would have offerings that are made to God. You would feed your God bread and wine. It it was sort of part of the relationship. And yet, the thing that was going on there was a sort of a a kind of a parasitical relationship, you know. There was the understanding that God needed to be fed. That was the people keeping their side of the deal. And then in return, the God would look after them. So, if you like... The God needed the offering as much as people needed the gods. Well, this sounds kind of similar, doesn't it? This is an offering that the people are making to God that is, again, a sign of the covenant relationship they've had. We've seen meals appear in the book of Exodus already. We saw that last week, that meal on the mountain. This is a meal. And yet there's something profoundly different that's being made, a point that's being made here. Because this bread of presence... This bread was for the priests to eat. Uh, Once a week, on the Sabbath, 
after that bread had been there seven days, we're told in Leviticus 24 that the priests were to eat this bread. They were to, as it were, symbolically share this meal with their gods. You see, we've seen God, haven't we, as the one who has provided for his people through the book of Exodus. At every turn, he's the God who poured down manna from the skies. He's the God who gives life. He's the giving God. And it's important for these priests, it's important for us to know that in a relationship with God, he doesn't demand from us. No, he gives us life and everything else. In a sense, the hardest thing we have to do is be those who gratefully receive, who are conduits of his grace. Now, we saw this at the start of the year, didn't we? When Jesus says, take my burden, because it's easy and light. Our king is no pharaoh who's come to make demands of us. His goodness abounds. For him to dwell in us means that we appreciate and celebrate his ongoing provision for us in all of our life, first in his salvation. But if you like, that's the keystone that, that brings us confidence in everything else. Into these words from Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, along with Jesus, graciously give us all thanks? Of course, that's not saying that he's going to give us all of the things that we selfishly desire. It's not going to give us all of the things we think we need. No, but it's better than that. This is the good king giving us what we really need. And he will never lead us short. But there's also another bit of furniture we are shown, and that is the lampstand. And I wonder whether we, when you read that, you, you were surprised maybe by the, the language used to describe the lampstand, the sort of flowery language. Did you notice that? They needed to make this lamp with like flower-like cups, three cups, verse 33, shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. Now, I think there's a picture up there on screen. I, I don't, can't really judge whether that actually is sort of what it looked like. I think the descriptions here make it sound very tree-like, don't they? Which is interesting. What does that make us think of? Remember the beginning of the Bible, the tree of life? Or in, even in Exodus, God appearing in this burning bush. It's another picture of God's life-giving presence with his people. And that the priests are to keep this light burning. If you like, this is going to be a sign to them that God is always home, that the lights are always on, that he's going to be there 24-7. He is the one who is going to provide and protect his people. But I think we are given it with another purpose in mind too. And that's because of what we read in chapter 25, verse 37, where we're told, uh, make it seven lamps and set them up on it so that they might light the space in front of it. And it's a bit curious. I think every time you read the Bible and there's, sort of, there's a sort of air of mystery of what's being talked about, it should kind of signal a kind of question. Why, why aren't we told what it's supposed to light? It's just telling us the, the place in front of us. Well, it's, we need to wait until the end of 26, where we're told where it will be placed, verse 34. Put the atonement cover on the ark of the covenant of law in the most holy place, but then place the table outside the curtain on the north side of the tabernacle and put the lampstand opposite it on the south side. What is this lamp to illuminate? This lamp is illuminating this bread of presence. This picture of that covenant meal with God. 
See, in the book of Revelation, it's interesting, isn't it, that the church is described as a lampstand. It's drawing on this sort of imagery. Jesus, the high priest, is, is going through God's true temple. He's inspecting the lampstands. I think the point here is that the, the light is God's spirit illuminating and pointing people to this presence. But in Revelation, it shows us that this is part of God's inbuilt design for who we are as his people. See, when we use the word evangelism, it often makes us feel somewhat reluctant, somewhat nervous. It feels like something odd can feel scary we we might not feel very good at it we might feel like we need sort of better techniques and conversations and yet God's plan in salvation in making a people and committing himself to dwell in it is for the expressed purpose of pointing people to a God who makes his home amongst people through Jesus you see there's something almost natural and inbuilt to this picture that as God reigns in us, as our holiness grows, as he takes more effect of every corner of our lives, as our relationships with one another become more Christ-like and we're able to love one another, as individuals we are, are rejoicing more and more in a God who gives us absolutely everything, we will not fail to be a witness to the world. If you like, there will be an unmistakable glow of Christ at work in us, pointing people to a God who has made his home through Jesus. And I think that would be a great thing for us to pray for one another, for us as a church. That we would truly get how incredible a privilege it is that God would dwell in us by the Spirit. That he would change our hearts to want to grow in that holiness that sees him as king, that submits before him, that we would truly cherish a God who gives us life and everything else. Let's take a moment to reflect on this and then maybe lead us in prayer.